0: Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston.
1: Welcome to Kind World. I'm Yasmin Amr. And I'm Andrea Aswahi. So our Kind World season officially wrapped last week. But this week, we've got something a little different for you. Instead of sharing just one story of kindness, we've created a playlist we're calling The Gift of Kindness. All the stories you'll hear today are about gifts that made all the difference. We'll start
0: with our 2016 story about a group of women who banded together to bring a little bit of light to a family who experienced a terrible tragedy. Here's producer Erica Lance
2: with Secret Sisters. As a young boy in Mechanicsville, Virginia, Nate Matheny had a habit of disappearing.
3: Nate had a tendency to wander. He'd sneak out the back door um, if you didn't keep an eye on him, and he would go onto people's front porches, and if they had wind chimes, he would just stand under their wind chimes and listen to the wind chimes chime
2: (laughs) that's nate's dad kevin Matheny. nate was always drawn to sound partly because he had williams syndrome it's a genetic condition that involves developmental delays and heart problems and people with williams syndrome often have hypersensitive hearing at six years old nate couldn't talk but he sang or hummed almost all the time one day nate seemed irritable He couldn't use words to tell his parents what was wrong, but clearly something was. That evening, his parents looked at the couch, and Nate wasn't humming. In fact, he wasn't moving. His lips had turned blue. Nate's sister, Caroline, was nine years old at the time and remembers it clearly.
0: I just got back home from my daycare after school, and I was watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and, like, my parents started freaking out because they realized that he wasn't breathing, and they were on the phone with 911, and the 911 was telling them how to do CPR until they got there, and my mom noticed me just standing there looking in fear, so she shoved me into the office
4: to watch my show.
2: Her parents rushed him to the hospital as word about Nate spread through town.
4: I was at dinner at Applebee's with my family of five going through
2: my Facebook feed, Tamara Letter knew Nate's mom, Diane, in high school.
4: I saw Diane post a request for prayer. Nate's heart had stopped, and they were trying to revive him. And we placed our orders at our restaurant, and my world continued on, and her world completely stopped.
2: Nate's parents always feared this day might come, but they didn't expect it to happen so quickly. The local hospital tried to prep Nate to take a helicopter ambulance to UVA, but they couldn't seem to stabilize him, and after just a few hours, Nate died. Nate's older sister, Caitlin, remembers seeing their dad the next day. For years, he'd given Nate his morning meds.
4: He woke up really early, and he's like, what do I do with my mornings now? I just remember actually seeing him cry for the first time, and him just looking desperate for what to do next.
2: Three days later, Tamara, that woman at Applebee's, was at Nate's wake, thinking of his mother, Diane. I felt the weight
4: of that loss, and it just felt so heavy. I wanted to help, but I didn't know
2: how. She mentioned this to another woman, and as the two of them stood next to Nate's casket, they formed a plan. They decided that, for one year, they would shower Diane's family with anonymous acts of kindness. And they'd recruit other women in different corners of Diane's life to join them.
4: We created a Facebook group. I chose five ladies and Michelle chose five ladies. That was it.
2: They called themselves the Secret Sisters. Each of the 12 women was assigned a month. And for that month, they'd commit to three things. Pray for Nate's family every day, Send small gestures of love throughout the month and give one larger gift, all anonymously. Nate's parents remember getting that first card, signed,
5: From the Secret Sisters.
3: We uh, immediately began investigating (laughs) as to who these people were.
5: (laughs) That looks like so and so's handwriting.
2: (laughs) And thus began the stream of anonymous notes and gifts from the Secret Sisters. Tamara says she and the others usually made deliveries under the cover of darkness.
4: I was terrified that I would drive by their house and they would recognize my car. You know, when was the last time you ding dong ditched somebody as a 40-year-old?
3: It was always a joy getting ready to go out the door and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, <laughs> there's, a, there's a basket on the front porch or there's something hidden in the mailbox or there's something um, <laughs> on, where, the hood of
2: my car. on the hood of
3: the car. Yeah. Uh,
2: they were really creative. The family was given crafts, food, and gift cards to movies and bowling alleys and restaurants, things to distract them from their grief. It touched Diane that these mysterious givers knew her son so well. For example, Diane received one gift in particular that reflected Nate's obsession with ladybugs. She opened the package to see a set of wind chimes, just like the ones Nate used to wander off to find. Small ladybugs dangled among the chimes.
5: I just started crying. I mean, it it was joy mixed with grief. Nate was still being remembered.
3: You would hear those chimes go off just about every day, it, it seemed like. And it was just a subtle reminder that that's something Nate loved.
2: A year after Nate's death his family received a large stuffed envelope from the Secret Sisters. We're like, oh, what's it going to be now? And um, it was a puzzle. When they put the jigsaw together, they saw an invitation to a picnic at the park. It was finally time to meet the Secret Sisters. The day of the party, the 12 women from different parts of Diane's life gathered nervously under a shelter at the park, waiting to finally reveal themselves. Then... Diane and her family arrived.
4: They got out of their car, and they scanned across and saw all of us standing
2: there. It really was an overwhelming moment. We all pretty much were in tears. Then they reminisced together about a year that had turned from terrible sadness to deep joy.
5: It was the best thing that could come out of a horrible situation.
2: Looking at all the friends who had gathered, Tamara saw that over one year... A little idea had turned into something big.
4: I realized that the seemingly small things that we do in life matter.
1: That was producer Erica Lance. This next story is from 2018, and it originally aired on WBUR and NPR's Only a Game. It's about a grandfather and how he's preserving his son's memory in a special way. Here's producer Matthew Stock with A Priceless Collection.
6: Growing up, Matthew Christian loved collecting baseball cards.
7: I was one of those kids that just you know, nag and nag and nag until, you know, my mom or somebody would buy me those baseball card packs. I probably have around, I'd say 50,000 baseball cards.
6: Matthew's 40 now, but his love for baseball cards hasn't faded. This year, he started his own business, a network for card collectors. People message him, and he tracks down the cards they're looking for. A few months ago, Matthew was at his house in Montana going through his inbox when he saw a message from a man named Patrick Friel in Jacksonville, Florida.
7: Hey, I'm looking for my son's cards. And I didn't recognize the name quite at first. And I said, well, you know, where'd they go? I'm thinking, okay, who took his son's cards and where'd they go? You know, what do you mean? Before long,
6: Matthew realized that Patrick wasn't looking for his son's missing collection. He was looking for cards of his son, Ryan Friel, a former Major League Baseball player with a reputation for leaving it all on the field.
7: Tries to punt, pops it up. Friel gives chase, dives in front of the camera well, and hangs on. Walker
8: tags He want to get out there and kick butt. Reckless abandon, he'd go bounce off a of wall if he could catch the ball.
6: That's Patrick, Ryan's father. He says fans would chant Friel for real every time his son sacrificed his body to make a spectacular play. But this all-out hustle came with consequences. Ryan was diagnosed with at least 10 concussions during his baseball career. And with head injury after head injury, Ryan's health got worse. Patrick says Ryan became forgetful and irritable after he retired in 2010. He battled depression and alcoholism, and on December 22, 2012, Ryan took his own life. He was 36 years old. After his death, Ryan was diagnosed with CTE, a condition that can cause the brain to deteriorate.
8: His brain, it looked like... A a Dalmatian puppy, it had black marks all over it.
6: Ryan's three daughters were very young when their father died, so Patrick decided to create a special way for them to remember their dad, which is why he contacted Matthew Christian.
7: He had said, My son died tragically, too young, and I'm looking for his baseball cards for my three granddaughters. I said, You know what, Mr. Friel? I've seen all kinds of generous things the sports car community has done for other people. I know they're going to step up and help this cause.
6: Matthew sent out messages to a few private collectors on Facebook, asking them to send him their Ryan Friel cards. He planned to send them to Patrick. In the meantime, he dug through his own collection.
7: And I could not find a single one, unfortunately.
6: (laughs) Out of 50,000 cards, you didn't have a single one?
7: I, I didn't have a single Ryan Friel card.
6: But a fellow collector shared Matthew's post on Twitter, and others joined the search. Hundreds of others. Matthew remembers the first envelope that came in the mail.
7: At first, it was actually packaged with um, not enough postage. I think I owed the mailman like $2.60 or something. It was a plain white envelope, and it was just a stack of cards, I think, with a rubber band around them.
6: The cards kept coming in. At one point... Matthew was receiving 15 packages a day, some from as far away as Honduras. Most of the cards were commonplace, but others, like a shimmering, one-of-a-kind card he received, would make an avid collector's eyes light up.
7: They made one of this card, and that is it. It's the golden ticket, probably his highest value card if I had to guess. And somebody was willing to send that and donate it to the family, so pretty incredible.
6: The outpouring of support for the Freel family hasn't stopped at baseball cards. Anything commemorating Ryan's baseball career has shown up on Matthew Christian's doorstep.
7: I've gotten Ryan Friel jerseys, an 8x10 photo of Ryan, autographed by Ryan. I've gotten three or four baseballs he signed. I got a baseball from a gentleman that said, Hey, Ryan flipped this baseball to me at the end of a game when I was six years old.
6: Along with the cards and the memorabilia, People have also written personal letters to the Friel family, sharing fond memories of Ryan's playing days and admiration for the player who gave his all to baseball.
7: Humanity can be awesome, and that's what happened in this case. Somebody saw this and said, you know what, I'm going to share this, and and it's going to reach hundreds of thousands of people, and they did. And then multiple people did.
6: In mid-August, Ryan's father Patrick received a box in the mail, postmarked from Montana.
8: Well, it came in, and my God, was it heavy. Uh, At least 30 or 40 pounds. Oh my God, I've never seen so many cards. 250 different cards times 20 to 30 each. There was some there I didn't even know about.
6: Over the past few months, Patrick has sorted the cards into three identical binders, one for each of his granddaughters as Christmas presents. He wants to ensure that his son's legacy is passed on. He says he couldn't have done this without Matthew Christian's help. And Matthew plans to pass on every keepsake honoring Ryan's memory. I don't plan to keep one card. Even to just commemorate this whole endeavor that you've been on?
7: Nope, not at all. You know, really, I I just want to see the smile on the girls' faces. That's it.
0: (laughs) That was producer Matthew Stock.
1: I'm Meghna Chakrabardi. Join me On Point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahi. And I'm Yasmeen Amr. Next up, we have a
0: story from 2017. This one is about an unexpected gift, and a gift that will always remind one daughter of just how much she's loved. Here's producer Erica Lance with dying words.
2: Welcome to Kind World from WBUR. Today's story is about Alice
5: Saunders, who grew up in New Hampshire in a house on top of a hill near a pond. I spent most of my childhood outside with like my feet in the water digging for frogs and tadpoles. Um with like salamanders in my overall pockets.
2: That idyllic childhood was interrupted when Alice was in middle school, and her parents decided to divorce. After that, she lived with her dad, R.P.R. Saunders, better
5: known as R.P., and they became a tight pair, legal aid lawyer and his teenage daughter a 15 year old living in small town New Hampshire and I liked punk rock and no one else did. And so my dad would drive me to Boston so I could go to concerts and he would sit in the parking lot and like read the New York Times and wait for me. He never would admit that he liked the music but then I'd put it on in the car and he would tap the steering wheel like in time with the beat. (laughs) They had a dinner date every Thursday night. I'm sure there were a lot of times where I like sat there in angsty silence. But usually they talked about life. The fact is, she admired him more than anyone. He
2: was just my closest friend. Alice was getting ready to move to Boston for college when she
5: remembers something weird happened. There had been a piñata in our house for someone's birthday party. And he was trying to talk about the piñata, but he kept saying, piña, piña, piña colada. It's like, what is he talking about? Like, piña colada? Like, what? She didn't think much of it, but that sort of
2: thing started happening more, and she was in her 20s when they finally learned why. Arpey had frontotemporal dementia, or FTD. His form of dementia mainly affected speech and some motor function. The doctor predicted that Arpey had five to 10 years to live,
5: and as time passed, he'd have more and more trouble speaking. In his head, he knew exactly what he wanted to say, and then actually getting the words out, that's where there was a disconnect. As his vocabulary
2: shrank, RP would endlessly repeat the words he did have, using tone of voice to talk between the lines. Father and daughter would have whole phone conversations like this, and he called her 10 or 20 times a day. And honestly, sometimes it drove me crazy. Alice was trying to start a business selling handmade bags, and the person she'd always turned to for help couldn't give
5: advice anymore. She struggled with that loss. Because I just wanted my dad, you know, I was... 29 years old and like overwhelmed with life by then there were just two phrases left that her father could say one was proud to be your dad and the other was i love you you know i'd get voicemails sometimes that was just like i love you i love you i love you i love you for like five minutes straight that's what he could say at the end It was around this time
2: that Alice started dating Greg Rallich. He was struck by her intense closeness with her dad.
3: Calling Alice and telling him that he loved her, I think that was the deepest thing in him. That's such a deep ravine that it persists.
2: They'd been dating for six months when she got a phone call saying her dad had choked on some food and was on life support. Three days later, he died. It was November, and in the weeks that followed, Alice threw herself into her business. On Christmas,
5: Greg surprised her when he handed her a mysterious envelope. I opened it, and inside there was a USB drive taped to the card, and then a little note that just said,
3: Merry Christmas, then like a little arrow that just said all your dad's
5: voicemails. Here's all your dad's voicemails.
2: Greg had snuck onto her phone and saved every voicemail from her dad from the past year, dozens and dozens of them with backups online and in a fireproof safe. I had never been given a
5: gift like that. That sounds really intense, but it's like his dying words. Have you listened to the voicemails yet? No, I haven't. It
2: felt too raw, too painful. But recently, it was finally time. Greg picked one of her dad's voicemails for her to listen to.
5: I'm a little scared. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm a little scared. Okay. I don't know what my reaction's going to be.
4: I love him. I love, you. I love 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 you. Call me back. Call me back. Call me back. Okay. bye 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 bye
5: bye I, I haven't heard his voice in years. It's just pure love, you know? It's pure love.
2: Alice has listened to only one voicemail so far. But she knows there are many to look forward to.
5: Maybe if I get married someday, I can listen to one of these before I walk down the aisle. If I have a baby, you know, I can play one of these and know that his grandchild can hear his voice.
2: For so long, Alice had to fear losing her dad's voice. Now it's the piece of him she knows she'll always have.
1: That was producer Erica Lance. Our last story is from 2013, and it's actually the second Kind World story ever. At first, our show aired on WBUR's Morning Edition,
0: just around the holidays, as a special treat for listeners here in Boston. So this story really showcases that holiday-giving spirit.
1: Here's our classic Kind World story, A Minister's Challenge.
9: I decided that uh, it'd be really a cool thing and a, and a great thing to be able to send people out to do uh, good things in the world. So I'd like actually if the ushers could come up with me now. We um, distributed about 150 envelopes. Of, uh, there's $1,500 total, so anywhere between $5 and $20 denominations. I invite us to open them now? And you could hear the gasps. My, my son actually said, uh, Dad, are you giving away our money. <laughs> and I assured him that no, this is from the discretionary fund that the church uh, gives me. Kathy, would you read for us what the cards? Are? And my charge was very, very simple. Use
5: this gift for good. Share the fact that it came from your church. Return and tell the
6: story.
9: In my job, I so often um, have the opportunity to help folks in need with resources the church provides me. So I really get to see the difference that that can make. such a simple thing, you know, $20 to help uh, somebody with a food bill or something. But most people don't get to see that um, impact that they have. And it felt like it would be almost selfish for me to keep that to myself.
5: My first thought was, cool, you know, we really get to— do something out there ourselves. And then my second thought was, I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do with this money. And we were all feeling the
9: same way. And so I, I expected people to be a little bit uh, paralyzed by it, frankly.
5: I took uh, both my money and my husband's. We doubled it.
9: Um, I did expect that people would pool it together.
5: Incredible amount of talking and thinking and planning. What could we do and what could we do together?
9: I expected that people would sit on it for a long time. I
5: waited a while.
9: And I really wanted to have conversations happen at the dinner table. And all of that really happened.
4: I'm a social worker, and I work at a local hospital. And I put the envelope in my folder that I carry with me. And um, within a few days, I was meeting with a patient, just the lovely lady that's struggling with a lot of medical issues and needs a little help and encouragement. And she was at the hospital all day for doctor's appointments, told me she'd used the last of her cash for the ride and had no food and no money for lunch. And I just took out my envelope and gave it to her. She was very surprised and very grateful, and she was hungry.
8: I kept it in my briefcase. I went to visit a family friend that was having issues... Psychologically and with substance abuse, and was at an inpatient facility and I went to visit that person who was very dear to my heart. We were talking about our families and our lives and our beliefs, and I said, "Well, I have an interesting story to tell you about my church you 've told me things about your church." And our church created this reverse offering. And I know you don't really need money per se, but I would like you to have this. It was symbolic in, in the sense that there are a lot of people out there that care about him. And I was just able to be a vehicle through which that was displayed. The good news is this individual is doing very well right now.
9: That small amount of money was given a large meaning. And I really wanted people to appreciate that. It's not the number on the bill that can make the difference. Often, it's the intention behind it. Somebody had folded up their $5 bill in their wallet, and they said they were walking through their life with a different kind of vision for the need that was around them. They sort of, he was only $5, but the, the money helped them grow new antennas for the world around them. For five bucks? That's that's a priceless thing.
0: That story was produced by Lisa Tobin and Michael May.
1: Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Paul Vikas and Matt Reed do our sound design, and Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahi.
0: And I'm reporter and producer Yasmeen Abar. Be sure to subscribe to Kind World on your podcast app and make sure you don't miss any of our bonus episodes or
1: the first episode of our upcoming season. You can also stay in touch with us on social media, we're at w b u r kind world on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We would love to hear your story of kindness. Maybe we could even feature it on an episode of Kind World. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.